Good. Uh, the connection. of better things to come. <laughs> no. Try again. Good. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm sorry if I sound a bit dopey this morning, but we were at a wedding. Uh, I think we got home about after half past one this morning. Seems to be the year for weddings. I think we've got about six or eight in the space of about seven months. It's all good, isn't it? It's wonderful to see young people, and particularly those who are marrying um, believers. Uh, it's just such a joy. To, to witness that sort of union together. So we had a great time, but um, I woke up feeling really dopey this morning. Uh, welcome again, particularly to our visitors. Um, we're studying in 2 Corinthians, and we're up to chapter 6 today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you're welcome to um, turn to that in your Bibles, by all means. But uh, hopefully you will see the verses come up on the screen as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now Chuck Swindle, you've all heard of Chuck Swindle. He gets together with a number of pastors and, uh, regularly and they ask themselves these questions. Have you been with a woman anywhere this past week that might be seen as compromising? Have, you, have, you, have any of your financial dealings lacked integrity? Have you exposed yourself to any sexually explicit material? Have you spent adequate time in Bible study and prayer? Have you given priority time to your family? Have you fulfilled the mandates of your calling? And finally, have you just lied to me? Why do these pastors ask themselves these questions? Because they want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with integrity and without compromise, and so did the Apostle Paul. And I think this chapter really is about serving the Lord Jesus uh, genuinely, with authenticity, with integrity. And without compromise. So there's just two points to take away from the sermon this morning. And that is serving with integrity. Seems to be a am I getting a <clears throat> a hum here? Or is it because this is on or 
try that. Is that better? Um, so two points. Serving Jesus with integrity, serving Jesus without compromise. And so the first uh, 13 verses sort of fit into that, serving with integrity, and then the flip side of the same coin, really, is serving without compromise. And Paul has some things to say there. So let's, let's just have a look at um, this particular passage. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is playing for authentic Christianity. And really these two verses are really probably part of chapter 5 that Lindsay did last week. This is what he says. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. So Paul says, my, or God's fellow workers. And what is that doing? It's pointing us back to chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So now it's the same idea expressed in a slightly, with a slightly different emphasis. Uh, instead of God um, being at work in and through Paul, the idea now is that God and his ambassadors for Christ are involved in this great enterprise, same enterprise that he's talking about in chapter 5, but as though God and his servants are standing together shoulder to shoulder. And Paul's plea is simply this, don't receive God's, uh, don't receive God's grace in vain. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he was generally concerned that the Corinthians may well have accepted the gospel in a sense, but their lives showed very little effect of having received God's grace. Um, He feared that their lives would be no different from the others around them who didn't profess faith in Christ. It was as though, for all outward appearances, Christ had not died, that they were still living to themselves and they were not new creatures at all, new creation. His plea was that their Christianity should not be just a a sham, not be just a, a hollow profession, but there should be a reality. The gospel should be transforming. And so his concern was that they had simply accepted it in the sense of almost an intellectual assent, but without very little effect in their lives. It's a, it's a very powerful point, isn't it, even in our day, that if we have genu- genuinely accepted Christ as our saviour, the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us then there should be a transformation process. Now, I know in some of us, you look at our lives and you say it's very, very slow, but nevertheless, there should be a transformation, a progression towards Christ-likeness, becoming more like the one in whom we belong and profess as our saviour. And then Paul says this, um, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. He, he, he quotes these, um, these verses, really, from Isaiah 49. Um, Oftentimes we use these sorts of words, these verses, uh, in a gospel context. So the preacher would be preaching and uh, make an urgent plea to his congregation to say, please be reconciled to God. Please accept Jesus Christ as your saviour because now is the day of salvation. Um, and that's, that's great because the gospel is urgent business. If you're not right with God today, we would urge you, we would urge you that today's the opportunity. 
that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He bore the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve, so that we might be reconciled to God. That's Paul's plea in the previous chapter. Be reconciled to God. And if you haven't been reconciled to God, if you cannot stand before him and know that your sins are forgiven, then you need Jesus Christ. And now's the time. Why? Because who's guaranteed of tomorrow? My friend Sam, I don't think he's here today, but he has a, a wonderful way of being able to ask people that question. So he'll say, well, mate, what if you died tonight? Where would you be? And so a conversation starts. Uh, it's a very powerful question, and it's one that Sam can ask and really get to, to the heart of it. Where, where, where might you be tomorrow? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but if you didn't see tomorrow, where would you be before God? The only grounds for forgiveness, the only grounds for being able to stand before God is to have the righteousness of Christ because by faith you accept him as your Lord and Saviour. But Paul is really actually meaning something a bit different here. Um, what he's doing is quoting the prophet Isaiah who was rejoicing in the fact that God had promised that the people would be set free from Babylon and uh, from their exile in Babylon, and he was really in a jubilant mood. And he actually took these words and he could see and apply them to a greater deliverance. And his message to the, to the believers at Corinth was really something like this. Look, friends, we live in exciting times. This is the gospel age when God has shown mercy on the human race and he freely invites people to come and be reconciled to him, to draw near to him. You live in the most marvellous of times. Appreciate that fact and live in the enjoyment of it. And I think those words can echo to us today. We live in a marvellous age, the gospel age, when freely we can proclaim the, the person of Christ, his work and his, his death and resurrection, and to invite people to come. And what he's saying is this, appreciate that and live lives that are worthy of it. Live lives that are worthy of it. Are you living a life worthy of the gospel? Um, have we received God's grace in vain? Is our profession of Christ a mere sham? Is it a, a hollow profession? Or do we sense that God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, is working in our lives with our yielding to him and changing us, transforming us from our minds and our hearts to our actions? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that German pastor and theologian, um, called this cheap grace. Cheap grace, the idea that you can apparently accept the grace of God without any transformation in your life. You know, accept forgiveness without repentance. He called that cheap grace, and it's always stuck in my mind since the time I first read it. Have we accepted God's grace in vain? And Paul goes on then to give an example of genuine Christianity. What's his example? himself. He's, uh, he says in verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. See, he's under attack. Um, he's endlessly being compared to the super apostles. Um, and throughout this letter, you'll see him defending himself and his ministry because he's under attack. He, he, he feels the need to defend his ministry. Why? defend himself and his ministry. Why? Because I think he could see the bigger picture, and that is if they could succeed in undermining him as the messenger, 
as the one who brought this message of Christ and salvation by grace alone, then they could undermine the message. They could hinder the progress of the gospel in transforming lives. And so he he could see a bigger picture than just him, his own reputation, his own character. He was always looking at the bigger picture. He was always looking at what honoured God. He was always looking at what was real love for people. And so he puts his, himself up as, a, as a, an example of genuine Christianity, authentic Christianity, a man of integrity, because his integrity was under attack. He's not boasting because he goes on to portray the kind of life that aspiring preachers often would not uh, find endearing, really off-putting, a life that was tough and demanding to the extreme. Can you imagine a job description for the, someone to replace the Apostle Paul? Must be a passionate preacher of the gospel, must not give offence, must be patient, kind, understanding, must show sincere love to others, or, or by the way, must be willing to endure the odd beating, or two, or three. Uh, oh yes, you'll probably be thrown in prison, you'll face uh, angry mobs, you'll have to work to the point of exhaustion, endure sleepless nights, go without food. Oh, and finally, it doesn't pay anything. Uh, You rely on gifts, uh, may not come so regularly, so you probably have to find a job to pay your expenses. Uh, How many takers do you think there'd be? Probably not too many today, would there? But this is a life that counts for God. Uh, The degree to which someone shows what they're willing to sacrifice for others, uh, demonstrates their integrity, demonstrates their sincerity. Uh, When I read through this, I thought how different this sounds from the prosperity doctrine, the prosperity gospel that's sweeping, still sweeping across the world, particularly in, in developing countries and destroying lives. You know, God wants us all in this life to be you know, wealthy and healthy uh, and all that's stopping it is your faith. And I guess we could ask Paul, well, what's wrong, Paul? Not enough faith? Hardly. Paul's life is, a, is an example of, of genuine Christianity, of serving with integrity, and he puts that up there to demonstrate that. And uh, let me just read through these verses and just with a li- little bit of comment about them. We, verse 3, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. That is, we do nothing to hinder people accepting Christ and growing to be more like him. Rather, he says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, many times, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit. You see, uh, Paul knew that without the Holy Spirit working in his life, these qualities uh, would not be possible. He goes on to say, and in sincere love, that is love that is not self-seeking or manipulative, but love that genuinely has the other person in mind. In truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, perhaps Paul was referring here to the spiritual battle where Satan is coming at him from all sides. There are various interpretations. That's the one I, I like. Paul seems to be saying here, if I'm the self-seeking, self-serving person that people say I am, how do you explain what I have gone through on your behalf? How do you explain that? It's a very powerful testimony. 
the price that you're willing to pay for others so that others might be benefited, that others might hear the gospel. Paul was willing to do it. No one, no sane person would do it just for the sake of it. Paul is saying, this demonstrates my sincerity. This demonstrates my integrity. This demonstrates my love for you. Um, Powerful argument. And in verses 8 to 10, um, Paul presents the two different assessments of him and his ministry. Um, This is what he says. Through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. You know, when I look at these two um, assessments that are opposed to each other, I, I wonder how one person could be seen so differently by different people. To some, Paul was a a poor, uh, sorrowful, unknown, dying imposter without without honour. To others, he was was spiritually rich, he was uh, alive, he was honourable, he was was a well-thought-of servant of God um, whose ministry enriched others. So two two completely opposite assessments in a a sense of who Paul was and his ministry. Um, Obviously, the difference was not in Paul, but in the ways that people saw him. So some people looked at him from a worldly point of view and others saw the divine assessment, the spiritual assessment of Paul's life and ministry. And so Paul goes on to say a plea, really, for reconciliation with them. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as, my, as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Paul is talking to them as a spiritual father, a father in the faith. Not to, to, to say, don't assess me by the worldly standards. Assess me from the viewpoint of God. And he says, my heart has, is open to you. In other words, his affection, his love for them. In, in fact, this word opened wide is one word in the Greek. And it's in the, what's called the perfect tense. And the emphasis is on the state rather than the action at the beginning. So he's really saying this, as, as he first loved them, so he continues, he still loves them and will continue to love them. In other words, he loved them, he still loves them. He's never given up on them. He still continues to love them. That's the love of Christ, isn't it? A love that doesn't give up on people. A love that continues to love in spite of what comes back in return. It's a love that continues to love in spite of us. That was what Paul is saying for them. I have always had my heart open to you. Now he says, please, please be reconciled to me. Please have this same love for me as well. And after all, isn't that what Christ asked of his disciples? Isn't that what he said would be the defining characteristic of Christians? is to love. Didn't he say that in the upper room? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love. If you love one another, love one another. The genuine life, the life of integrity, authentic Christianity. I, I was thinking, it reminded me, of, I don't know who said it, but it's never gone from me. Uh, someone once said, 
your true character comes out under two particular circumstances. One is when you're on your own and no one knows what you're doing or no one that you know knows what you're doing. Uh, that's true, isn't it, I think, when you're on your own. Um, the other is the opposite, I suppose, and that is when you're under pressure, when things go wrong. Uh, I think that's often a, demonstrates our true colours, doesn't it? It demonstrates whether we're genuine. Paul could hold up his life and say, under whatever the circumstances, um, I've sought to follow the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly and be devoted to him. Um, I'm not sure I could hold mine up. Could you? What's the secret to genuine Christianity? How do we become the people that God wants us to be? Well, Paul's already told us. He tells us in chapter 5, verse 14, what gets him up in the morning, what motivates him, what, what, what compels him to do what he does every day, to take the message of the cross, to take the message of Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen again, salvation by faith, preaching repentance and turning in faith to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. What gets him up in the morning to do that? He says, the love of Christ compels us. The wonderful love and compassion of Christ motivated Paul every single day, every single moment of his life. I'm sure whenever he was feeling a little bit discouraged or whatever, the love of Christ would be an ever-present reality in his life. I'm sure so often he went back to the cross. And I think that's where we've got to go, back to the cross. And, and, And see again that love displayed in all its fullness when Christ died for the ungodly, that's you and me, that he might bring us to God. Let's go on to the second one. Serving with integrity. Oh, yeah, I did that. Serving without compromise is the second part, I think, of this particular chapter, and it really runs through to the first verse in chapter 7, so I'm sorry if I'm taking a little bit from, uh, is it Bill next week? Um, uh, In chapter 7. But I think the first verse, really, of chapter 7 probably relates to this particular passage. Um, And what Paul is saying here is some things that should not be done in order that we might not compromise our walk with the Lord. So, firstly, what uh, must not be done. What does he say? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, some people think that this particular section here from verse 14 to the first verse of chapter, one, uh, of chapter 7 was actually added in later. Um, the reason is because verse 13 finishes with Paul saying, open wide your hearts also. And verse 2 of uh, chapter 7 says, make room for us in your hearts. So you can see that he... He's, he's thinking a certain way, he stops and digresses and then he picks up again in verse 2 of chapter 7. Now, there's no manuscripts that have ever been discovered that don't include these verses. So it's, it's, it's highly, just a, it's just a, a figment of people's imagination to think that this was added in later. I think Paul is simply writing a letter and thinking it through and as he gets to this point, he digresses because he has something important to tell them before coming back to to the, to the theme of the first part of chapter 6. What is Paul meaning here when he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers or do not be mismatched with unbelievers? Uh, what, what's Paul doing? Well, he's drawing some imagery from the Old Testament. So he's going back to Deuteronomy 22 
and verse 10, and there um, the Israelites were forbidden to pull a plough with an ox and a donkey yoked together, harnessed together, um, because it would produce... Yeah, you know, no farmer would do that because it would just produce disastrous consequences because the, um, the ox and the donkey, they differed in size, they differed in, in um, strength, they differed in behaviour, and the resulting furrow uh, would be very crooked uh, because they were pulling in opposite directions. They would be <clears throat> not collaborating together, thinking together, behaving in the same way, uh, they would be pulling in opposite directions. And so what Paul is doing is using this image to picture what happens when believers, um, believers in the Lord Jesus attempt to certain kinds of cooperation and collaboration with non-Christians, with unbelievers. Um, it's a partnership of opposites and shouldn't be attempted. It doesn't work. And this, of course, leads us to ask the question, well, what is Paul talking about? Um, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. What is he saying? Um, I mean, he obviously can't, he can't mean that it's an outright ban on social contact. He, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look, if, if you were to you know, cut off contact with all um, non-Christians, then you'd have to leave the planet. So he's obviously not contradicting what he's already said. He's not, he's not saying you've got to cut off every contact with non-Christians. Uh, and, and besides that, Paul was very passionate about using whatever means possible um, to reach people, no matter what the ethnic group was, to, to, to whatever extent he could, not compromising his loyalty to Christ, he would do, he would live, he would adopt the customs, he would do whatever in order that he might be able to bring Christ to them. So he would remove the hindrances as long as it didn't compromise his walk with Christ, his loyalty to his Saviour. Uh, so Paul's not advocating some kind of quarantine, you know, quarantine ourselves off, a holy, uh, you know, huddle. It's a huddle. It's, a, it's not that sort of thing. I remember when I was growing up as a young Christian, I was in a church that um, I think really did advocate a quarantining off from the world. You, you really didn't have... You were discouraged from making contact with unbelievers except to give them tracts and sort of rack off. But having uh, friendships was sort of something that you, you really were encouraged to have, friends with who were not believers. Now, you weren't to associate with them. You, you weren't to go to other churches because almost certainly they were unbelievers. You weren't to go to the movies. You weren't to go to the drive-in. You weren't to go dancing. <sighs> I'm a shocking dancer because of that. <laughs> You weren't to have makeup, earrings, short dresses. I was never tempted by that, by the way. Uh, you weren't to go near the pub. You weren't to buy shares in a company. You weren't to join a union or a workers' association. I don't think Paul's talking about that, really. I don't think he's talking about a bunch of rules. He's talking about a principle. Uh, for, for some activities for some person, people may not be the same for others. Um, so what does Paul mean here? Well, I think we can get a few clues from what he's already said in 1 Corinthians, for instance. What has he said that might indicate what he's meaning here? And I think there's at least two things. One of them is in relation to marriage. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think Daryl did chapter 7, um, verse 39, what does Paul say? He makes the point 
that a believer is free to marry a partner of his or her choice as long as that union is in the Lord. In the Lord. That is, a believer marry another believer. Okay? Uh, and this is the example, this is an example of the kind of mismatch where, where, where a believer marries an unbeliever. The analogy of two ill-suited um, animals being harnessed together but pulling in opposite directions is very apt when it comes to a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian. And Paul is saying here, please don't do it. It doesn't work. At a spiritual level, it will be a, not a partnership but a tug-of-war match. Um, now, the thing is, young believers are often uh, smitten with an unbelieving friend and uh, long to marry them. And they, they may well think this, well, perhaps... Uh, I will influence him or her to become a Christian. Uh, and I want to say that's wishful thinking. Now, I have very dear friends who married unbelievers and God did save their unbelieving spouse. Well, I just say praise God for that. Thank God for that. There's nothing too hard for him. But more often than not, things take an opposite course. Things really take, and, and you probably know people who you look at their lives who are Christians and you wonder what could they have been if they had a spouse who was a believer. You see, the unbelieving spouse <clears throat> blunts the edge of the believing half of the relationship of the partnership, and the believer is compromised. And this is all about serving without compromise. Um, he or she cannot be all that God intends them to be. Because there's a mismatch, because there's a pulling in opposite directions. And marriage was never intended as a method of evangelism. And so that thinking is a wishful thinking. Now, if you're married and you have an unbelieving husband or wife, then you need to love them, live with them, honour the Lord, and make it a real matter of prayer that God will graciously touch their lives and bring them to the Lord Jesus in faith. Um, and the church should do the same. We as a church, as your church family, should rally around you to pray constantly that God will touch the life of your unbelieving partner. But I, I want to say that if you're a believer and you're contemplating marrying or date, even dating an unbeliever, can I say lovingly and with the mind of Paul, please don't, please don't. You need to pray that God will give you the wisdom to bring this relationship to an end the wisdom to know how to do that in a godly way and as loving as possible and see what God can do in their lives. God wants you to marry a believer. It may be someone already in your life that you have not contemplated. You've not considered them. Someone who will love you and be faithful to you who loves the Lord. Maybe it's someone that you already know. We're so pressured to, to look at externals, aren't we? The superficial things. You know, by all means, marry someone that's hot. <laughs> but in the spiritual sense. You need to ask, how are we compatible? Are we compatible in all, in, in all areas of life, but particularly on the spirit, in the spiritual sense? Are we on the same page? Because if you're spiritually not on the same page, that's not just a road, block, a road bump 
on the road to marital bliss, that is a, a crack in the very foundations. And you need to understand the difference between the two. In marriage, there are always road bumps. But if you begin with the foundation already cracking, then it can lead to much heartbreak. Will this person take me closer to Christ or take me further away from him? That's the question. That's the question. I think there's one more thing uh, Paul is thinking of here, and that is perhaps what we would call today multi-faith worship. Multi-faith worship. Um, There's another example that Paul's previously mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Um, He talks about this in chapters 8 to 10 particularly. Um, He was talking about the concern that believers at Corinth were seemingly quite happy or willing to attend feasts in pagan temples. Um, And the problem wasn't so much with Christians socialising with non-Christians, but it was the choice of venue and the activities that went on there. So often when um, these banquets happened and took place, they took place in in the... in the temple of a particular god, there was a ceremony attached to the the banquet and often there was an element where there was a giving of thanks to the god who permitted his temple to be used for for this occasion. So Paul is really saying, how can you as a follower of Jesus eat at the Lord's Supper on Sunday only to eat and drink at a place where worship of demons offered to demons on Monday? It's incompatible. It compromises the Christian's walk. And I think, if anything, it was this that Paul had in mind when he pens the words of these verses Um, because there's a specific reference in verse 16 to the the sheer inconsistency for Christians exposing themselves to idols. So Paul, what's Paul doing? He's sounding a warning that we should reflect on what associations do I have with people, organisations and activities that compromise or even potentially compromise my wholehearted Um, devotion and worship of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's the key, to examine ourselves and ask ourselves. You you know, in in one sense it's easy if you just make rules, isn't it? About certain activities. You know, Beekeepers Association, well, very suspect group, stay away, you know, it's, it's the rule. Golf club membership, pretty innocuous, thumbs up. Fishing with Harvey or Noel, okay, but not on Sundays. You know, um, it's easy to develop all the rules, isn't it? Rules can be good in some respects, uh, but they never change hearts and hearts' desires. Okay? It's not that we throw rules all out the door. You know, if, if, if you've got a gambling habit, um, putting in place a hedge where you, you, you don't get money to be able to gamble with or you, you, you don't go anywhere near a place of gambling uh, may keep you, to some extent, from gambling, but it won't change your heart's desire. But in itself, it may be a good thing to have those rules in your life. But rules don't change hearts. They don't change hearts' desires. What changes hearts is knowing Christ and the love of Christ, the love of Christ constraining us, compelling us. Um, and that's what Paul's already said. That's what gets him up, motivates him, the love of Christ. And so it's about asking ourselves the principle of it, is what is hindering my walk with the Lord? A dramatic pause. (laughs) What's, What's holding me back from following Christ wholeheartedly and not just in some patchy 
way. Battery gone flat. So that's the question we need to ask ourselves, rather than put in place the rules. Because I might not have any problem in playing a game of golf or whatever, but someone else might, and they feel that that is hindering their walk with the Lord. So it's much harder to work with the principle and the spirit of something and to let the love of Christ, under, the, under that spotlight of, of God's holiness and the love of Christ, to ask, what is it that I need to do in my life to change it? And in verses 14 to 16, um, Paul, I'll just run through this very quickly, Paul gives us the reasons why it can't be done. So he gives us the principle that there should not be a mismatch between believers and unbelievers. Um, but then he gives us the reasons. We're not to take part in these acts of worship that deny the gospel. Uh, and he says there's five, he gives five reasons, and the way he does it is by way of rhetorical question, um, where the answer is assumed. Okay, that's a, it's a, a question where the answer is assumed. The answer is, of course, it can't. So here's the five things. Verse 14. Do not be yoked together uh, with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? They're direct opposites. One seeks to conform to God's standards, the other flouts them. Uh, there's no middle ground here. That's what Paul's saying. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and, and Belial? Or Satan, that's a, a name if you like referring to Satan. That is, what does Christ have in common with Satan? Nothing. Nothing. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Well, the answer is nothing. Really at least in the spiritual sense. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And here's an interesting question. What's Paul meaning by the temple of God? Well, where do we find the temple of God? Well, he goes on to say, for we are the temple of the living God. God has chosen to live among his people, and this is reinforced in the second part of verse 16 with a statement that's taken from the Old Testament scriptures again, Leviticus chapter 26 there's a verse apart from, uh, from Jeremiah 32 and from Ezekiel 37. Uh, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Each and every one of us as believers, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are like little temples that house the Holy Spirit. It is like Paul saying, how can you go into a pagan temple steeped with the worship of demons when you are the temple of the living God? You are the temple of the living God. How can that be pleasing to God? How can you take your professed commitment to, de to the Lord Jesus seriously? And this is a cause for us all to look at the pagan temples in our own lives. And there are many pagan temples in our lives. In this, this, there are so many things that are comparative between the age that we live in and the early age of the church. We live in a pagan society. We live in a pluralistic society. There are many pagan temples. Some of them are virtual, online. Some of them are physical. We need to ask ourselves that question. What are the pagan temples that I am visiting that I need to reassess and change in my life? And Paul says in verses 17 and 18, he talks about a promise of blessing for faithfulness. This is what he says. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So Paul is, is pressing home the point, the implication of his teaching. He's summing it up by the words, come out from among them. 
That means that Christians are to, <coughs> are to come out from compromising situations where their testimony to the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives is blunted. Uh, by the way, this is not a verse to justify dividing the church. It's in the context of a believer in a non-believing, pluralistic, pagan world. Uh, once again, in verse 17, Paul quotes from the Old Testament uh, relating to Israel's return from Babylon. So in uh, Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 20, what happened was this. When they came back from, uh, from uh, exile, uh, leaving Babylon, they were leaving the pagan city behind. The problem was that there would be a danger, a subtle danger, that they wouldn't leave all of paganism behind when they came back to Israel, they came back to Jerusalem. But they would take a little bit of the baggage from Babylon back home. And so the, uh, uh, the move was a go- back to Israel was a golden opportunity to, to be done with paganism, to be done with compromise. Uh, and in the same way, Christians who've been released from spiritual captivity, need to, we need to ensure that we don't take the attitudes uh, into our new life of service for Christ that will... Uh, lead to some sort of like a creeping captivity, like a Babylonian captivity of the soul. And for those who, those who uh, uh, separate themselves from false worship, uh, from, from the, the, the guidals and the gods of this world, that take away or hinder our devotion to Christ is a blessing in verse 18. In verse 18, Paul's again quoting from the Old Testament. He does a lot of that, doesn't he? Back to Isaiah 43. Verse 6, he's making the point that those who give up their divided loyalties and return to God will find that he responds with a fatherly love, a fatherly love, a care and a compassion of the father for his children. And this is the path that ensures that we will enjoy him more, we'll enjoy Christ more, we'll appreciate his uniqueness, we'll appreciate his glory, his, 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 his splendour, his matchless splendour, and he will respond by deepening our relationship with him. And finally, in verse, um, verse 1 of chapter 7, says this. Paul says this. It's a fitting conclusion, I think. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. God wants his people to be a holy people because he is holy, Peter says. Not being content with a, with a holiness that's patchy, or partial. It really is a, is a, a nonsensical definition. We need to serve our Lord Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, with integrity, without compromise. Respect for a holy God demands no less. So let's pray. Father, as we have come to your word today, we just want to pause to thank you. Thank you that you have given us your word in our hands to freely open and to reflect on what you were saying through the Apostle Paul to us even today. Help us, Father, as we've looked at these words that Paul has written, um, as he's opened up his heart, as he seeks to uh, look for the very best for the believers at Corinth, that we too might take this to heart, that we might have a developing appreciation and a desire to serve our Lord Jesus Christ with integrity and without compromise. Help us, Father, to examine our lives and to see what there is in our lives that hinders us from our walk with our Lord Jesus and to do something about that this week, whatever that may be in our lives. So we ask for this and we thank you for your many blessings to us. Uh, In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.
Uh, do stay for a cup of coffee or a cup of tea outside. <laughs>